9. RBC 196 A treaty was ratified by which the Macedonians were compelled to renounce their supremacy, to withdraw their garrisons from the Grecian towns, to surrender their fleet, and to pay 1,000 talents for the expenses of the war, half at once, and half by annual installments in the course of 10 years. Thus ended the Second Macedonian War, at the ensuing Isthmian Games, which were celebrated at Corinth in the summer of this year. Flamininus was present, and a herald at his command solemnly proclaimed the independence and freedom of Greece. This unexpected news was received with overwhelming gratitude and joy. The throngs of people that crowded round Flamininus to catch a sight of their liberator, or to touch his garment, were so enormous as almost to endanger his life. Flamininus remained two years longer in Greece in order to settle the affairs of the country. He seems to have been actuated by a sincere desire to restore the internal peace and welfare of Greece, and whenever his actions appear at variance with this object, he was under the influence of the policy of the Republic. Thus, though he made war upon Nabaeus, the tyrant of Sparta, and deprived him of the southern portion of Laconia, he did not expel him from Sparta, that he might serve as a full check upon the Achaeans. When Flamininus returned to Italy in B.C. 194, he withdrew the Roman garrisons from all the Grecian towns, even from Corinth, Chalcis, and Demetrius, the three strongest fortresses in the country, which were called the fetters of Greece. On his departure he convoked an assembly of the Greeks at Corinth, in which he exhorted them to use their freedom wisely, and to remain faithful to Rome. Flamininus had been absent five years. His reputation was second only to that of Scipio Africanus. His triumph, which was most magnificent, lasted three days. It has been already mentioned that Philip had formed an alliance with Antiochus II, king of Syria, surnamed the Great, for the dismemberment of the Egyptian monarchy. During the war between Philip and the Romans, Antiochus had occupied Asia Minor, and was preparing to cross into Greece. Upon the conclusion of this war, Flamininus sternly forbade him to set foot in Europe and for a time he shrank from a contest with the victorious arms of Rome. But the Aetolians, who had fought on the Roman side, were discontented with the arrangements of Flamininus. Their arrogance led them to claim the chief merit of the victory of Sinocephaly, and their cupidity desired a larger share in the spoils of the war. Flamininus had scarcely quitted Greece before the Aetolians endeavored to persuade Philip, Nabaeus, and Antiochus to enter into a league against the Romans. Philip at once refused. But Nabai took up arms, and Antiochus willingly entered into the designs of the Aetolians. At this time Hannibal appeared as an exile at the Syrian court. After the Second Punic War he had set himself to a work, like his father Hamilcar at the end of the previous war, to prepare means for renewing the contest at no distant period. He introduced various reforms in the constitution, and seems to have deprived the oligarchy of their exclusive power but they avenged themselves by denouncing him to the Romans as engaged in negotiations with Antiochus to induce him to take up arms against Rome. The Senate sent envoys to Carthage to inquire into these charges, and Hannibal, seeing that his enemies were too strong for him, secretly took flight, and reached the court of Antiochus in safety. He was received with the highest honors, and urged the king to place an army at his disposal with which he might invade Italy but Antiochus was persuaded by the Aetolians to cross over into Greece, and accordingly landed at Demetrius in Thessaly in B.C. 192. The Romans now declared war against Antiochus, and in the following year B.C. 191 the consul Asilis Glabrio marched into Thessaly. The king had entrenched himself in the Passace of Thermopylae, 
that he might prevent the Romans from penetrating into central Greece, but there was, as is well known, a difficult passage across Mount Ida, by which the Persians had descended to fight with Leonidas. This passage was now forced by Ancato, who was serving as one of the consul's lieutenants, and as soon as he appeared in the rear of the Syrian army they fled in confusion, and the battle was won. Antiochus now hastened back to Asia, abandoning all farther hopes of conquest in Greece. As soon as he had placed the sea between himself and the Romans he thought that he was safe, but Hannibal warned him of his error, and said that he wondered that the Romans had not already followed him. Next year B.C. 190 leaders Cornelius Scipio, the brother of the great Africanus, and Silelis, the intimate friend of the latter, were consuls. El Scipio was anxious to have the command of the war against Antiochus, but the Senate had not much confidence in his ability, and it was only in consequence of his brother Africanus offering to serve under him as his lieutenant that he obtained the command which he desired. Meantime Antiochus had collected a vast army from all parts of his dominions, and, advancing northward from Ephesus, laid waste the kingdom of Pergamus, but upon the approach of the Roman army, which entered Asia by crossing the Hellespont, Antiochus retreated southward, and the decisive battle was fought near Magnesia, at the foot of Mount Cypilus. The Romans obtained an easy and bloodless victory over the vast but disorderly rabble of the Syrian monarch. Only 400 Romans fell, while Antiochus lost 53.000 men. He at once gave up the contest in despair, and humbly sued for peace. The conditions were hard. He had to cede all his dominions west of Mount Taurus that island the whole of Asia Minor to pay 15.000 Uadboy talents within 12 years, to give up his elephants and ships of war, and to surrender to the Romans Hannibal and some others who had taken refuge at his court. Hannibal foresaw his danger, and made his escape to Crete, from whence he afterward repaired to the court of Prusias, king of Bithynia. El Scipio returned to Rome in the following year, bringing with him enormous treasures. In imitation of his brother, he assumed the surname of Aesiadius. The Romans were now at leisure to punish the Aetolians, who had to make head against the Romans by themselves. The consul Amphulvis Nobiliar BC 189 took their chief town, Ambracia, after an obstinate resistance, and compelled them to sue for peace. This was granted, but on the most humiliating conditions, they were required to acknowledge the supremacy of Rome, to renounce all the conquests they had recently made, to pay an indemnity of 500 talents and to engage in future to aid the Romans in their wars. The power of the Aetolian League was thus forever crushed, though it seems to have existed, in name at least, till a much later period. The colleague of Amphilvis Nobiliar was seen, Manlius Balso, who had received Asia as his province, that he might conclude the peace which his predecessor, Scipio Asiaticus, had made with Antiochus, and arrange the affairs of Asia. But Manlius was not content with the subordinate part allotted to him, and being anxious for booty as much as for glory, he attacked the Galatians in Asia Minor, without waiting for any instructions from the Senate, and in direct opposition to the ten commissioners who had been sent to arrange conjointly with him the affairs of Asia. This was the first instance in which a Roman general had made war without the authority of the Senate or the people, a dangerous precedent, which was afterward only too faithfully followed. The Galatians were, as has been already said, a body of Gauls, who, after laying waste a great part of Asia Minor, had settled in the north of Phrygia. They had fought in the army of Antiochus at Magnesia, and this supplied Manlius with a pretext for marching against them. He defeated them in two battles, 
and compelled them to sue for peace. The campaign greatly enriched Manlies and his legions, as the Gauls had accumulated enormous wealth by their many conquests in Asia. Manlies remained another year B.C. 188 in the East as proconsul, and, in conjunction with the ten commissioners, formally concluded the peace with Antiochus, and settled the affairs of Asia. Eumenes, the king of Pergamus, received Mysia, Lydia, and part of Caria. The Rhodians obtained the remaining portion of Caria, together with Lycia and Pisidia. Manlies returned to Rome in B.C. 187, and his triumph, like that of Scipio Asiaticus, was most magnificent, but his soldiers, like that of Scipio, introduced into the city the luxuries of the East. These campaigns, as we shall presently see, exercised a most injurious influence upon the character of the Roman nobles and people, teaching them to love war for the sake of acquiring wealth, and prompting them to acts of robbery and rapine. Chapter XVI Wars in the West, the Jaelalisi, Elijahuarian, and Spanish Wars, B.C. 200-175. While the Roman legions in the East were acquiring wealth and winning easy conquests, their less fortunate comrades in the West were carrying on a severe struggle with the warlike Gauls, Ligurians, and Spaniards. The Romans had hardly concluded the Second Punic War when they received intelligence that Hamilcar, a Carthaginian officer, had excited several tribes in northern Italy to take up arms against Rome. These were the Gauls on both sides of the Po, and the Ligurians, a race of hardy mountaineers, inhabiting the upper Apennines and the Maritime Alps. They commenced the war in B.C. 200 by the capture and destruction of the Roman colony of Placentia, and by laying siege to that of Cremona, the two strongholds of the Roman dominion in northern Italy. The Romans now set themselves to work, with the characteristic stubbornness of their nation, to subdue thoroughly these tribes, the Insubres and the Sinomani, to the north of the Po, were the first to yield, but the Boye resisted for some years all the efforts of the Romans, and it was not till B.C. 191 that the consul P. Cornelius Scipio Nasica received their final submission. He slaughtered the Boye without mercy, and made it one of the claims of his triumph that he had left only children and old men alive. This warlike people was now thoroughly subdued, and from henceforth Cisalpine Gaul became a Roman province, and gradually adopted the language and customs of Rome. The submission of the people was secured by the foundation of new colonies and the formation of military roads. In B.C. 190 a colony was established at Mononia, now Bologna, in the country of the Boye, and six years afterward others were also founded at Mutna Magna and Parma, a military road made by Amimilis Lepidus, consul for B.C. 180 and called the Via Emilia, was a continuation of the Via Flaminia, and ran from Ariminum past Placentia, Mutna, and Parma to Placentia. The subjugation of the Ligurians was a longer and more difficult task. These hardy mountaineers continued the war, with intermissions, for a period of eighty years. The Romans, after penetrating into the heart of Liguria, were seldom able to effect more than to compel the enemy to disperse, and take refuge in their villages and castles of which the latter were mountain fastnesses, in which they were generally able to defy their pursuers, but into the details of these long protracted and inglorious hostilities it is unnecessary to enter. The conquests of Scipio Africanus had driven the Carthaginians out of Spain, and established the Roman supremacy in that country. Accordingly, soon after the end of the Second Punic War about BC 198, the Romans proceeded to consolidate their dominion in Spain by dividing it into two provinces, each governed by a praetor, 
which were called Hispania Sicariar, or Hither Spain, and Hispania Ulterior, or Farther Spain, and divided from each other by the Ibris or the Ebro, but it was little more than the eastern part of the peninsula that was really subject to Rome, the powerful tribes of the Celtiberians in central Spain, the Lusitanians in Portugal, and the Cantabrians and Galatians in the northwest, still maintained their independence. The division of the country into two provinces showed that the Romans intended to occupy it permanently, and occasioned a general insurrection. The consul Emporcius Cato, of whom we shall speak more fully presently, was sent to put down this insurrection B.C. 195. The whole country was in arms, but his military genius and indefatigable industry soon re-established the superiority of Rome. He gained several decisive victories, contrived to set tribe against tribe, and took native mercenaries into his pay. The details of his campaign are full of horrors. We read of the wholesale slaughter of men who had laid down their arms, of multitudes sold as slaves, and of many more who had put themselves to death to escape this fate. Cato was not the man to feel any compunctions of conscience in the performance of what he considered a rigorous public task. He boasted of having destroyed more towns in Spain than he had spent days in that country, when he had reduced the whole of Hither Spain to a hollow, sullen, and temporary submission. He returned to Rome, and was rewarded with a triumph. The severe measures of Cato only exasperated the Spaniards. They again took up arms, and continued to resist the Roman praetors for the next sixteen years, till Tib, Sempronius Gracchus, the father of the celebrated tribunes, after gaining several brilliant victories over the Celtiberians, granted them an honorable peace. By his wise measures and conciliatory conduct he won the affections of the natives, and induced them to submit to the Roman supremacy B.C. 179. It remains to mention two other wars in the West. The Sardinians and Corsicans revolted, and held out for two years against the conqueror of Spain B.C. 177-175. But Gracchus effected their complete subjugation and brought to Rome so large a number of captives for sale as to give rise to the proverb, Sardi Venus, for anything that was cheap and worthless. The Istrians, near the head of the Adriatic Gulf, had been conquered by the Romans just before the Second Punic War, but their complete subjugation was now necessary, on account of their proximity to the newly formed province of Cisalpine Gaul. Accordingly, the consuls invaded Istria in B.C. 178 and in the following year the whole people was reduced to submission. Chapter XVII. The Roman Constitution and Army. The career of foreign conquest upon which the Republic had now entered continued with little or no interruption till the establishment of the Empire. We may here pause to take a brief survey of the form of government, as well as of the military organization by which these conquests were effected. The earlier history of the Roman Constitution has been already related. We have seen how, after a long struggle, the plebeians acquired complete political equality with the patricians. In the Second Punic War, the antagonism between the two orders had almost disappeared, and the only mark of separation between them in political matters was the regulation that, of the two consuls and two censors, one must be a patrician and the other a plebeian. Even this fell into disuse upon the rise of the new nobility, of which we shall speak in the next chapter. The patricians gradually dwindled away and it became the custom to elect both consuls and censors from the plebeians. I the magistrates, every Roman citizen who aspired to the consulship had to pass through a regular gradation of public offices, and the earliest age at which he could become a candidate for them was fixed by a law passed in B.C. 179, and known by the name of the Lex Annales. 
the earliest age for the quaestorship, which was the first of these magistracies, was 27 years, for the aedileship, 37, for the praetorship, 40, and for the consulship, 43. All magistrates at Rome were divided into curules and those who were not curules. The curule magistrates were the dictators, censors, consuls, praetors, and curule aediles, and were so called because they had the right of sitting upon the cella curules, originally an emblem of kingly power, imported, along with other insignia of royalty, from Etruria. 1. The quaestors were the paymasters of the state. It was their duty to receive the revenues, and to make all the necessary payments for the military and civil services. There were originally only two quaestors, but their number was constantly increased with the conquests of the Republic. Besides two quaestors who always remained at Rome, every consul or praetor who conducted a war or governed a province was attended by one of these magistrates. 2. The aedileship was originally a plebeian office, instituted at the same time as the tribuneship of the plebs. To the two plebeian aediles two curule aediles were added in B.C. 365. The four aediles in common had the charge of the public buildings, the care of the cleansing and draining of the city, and the superintendence of the police. They had also the regulation of the public festivals, and the celebration of the Ludi Magni, or great games, was their especial function. Originally they received a sum of money from the state to defray the expenses of these games, but the grant was withdrawn about the time of the First Punic War, a measure attended with important consequences, since the higher magistracies were thus confined to the wealthy, who alone could defray the charges of these costly entertainments. After the Macedonian and Syrian Wars, the cruel aediles often incurred a prodigious expense, with the view of pleasing the people, and securing their votes in future elections. 3. The institution of the praetorship in B.C. 366 has been already narrated. There was originally only one praetor, subsequently called Praetor Urbanus, whose chief duty was the administration of justice. In B.C. 246 a second praetor was added, who had to decide cases in which foreigners were concerned and who was hence called Praetor Peregrinus. When the territories of the state extended beyond Italy, new praetors were created to govern the provinces. Two praetors were appointed to take the administration of Sicily and Sardinia B.C. 227, and two more were added when the two Spanish provinces were formed B.C. 197. There were thus six praetors, two of whom stayed in the city and the other four went abroad. Each praetor was attended by six lictors. Four. The consuls were the highest ordinary magistrates at Rome, and were at the head both of the state and the army. They convoked the Senate and the Assembly of the Centuries, they presided in each, and had to see that the resolutions of the Senate and the people were carried into effect. They had the supreme command of the armies in virtue of the Imperium conferred upon them by a special vote of the people. At the head of the army, they had full power of life and death over their soldiers. They were preceded by twelve lictors but this outward sign of power was enjoyed by them month by month in turn. The magistrates above mentioned were elected annually, but it was the practice frequently to prolong the command of the consuls or praetors in the provinces under the titles of proconsuls or propraetors. In the later times of the Republic it was usual for both consuls and several praetors to remain at Rome during their year of office, and at its close to take the command of provinces, with the titles of proconsuls or propraetors. 5. The Dictatorship which occurs so often in the early history of the Republic, disappears altogether after the Second Punic War, as the Republic became powerful, and had no longer to dread any enemies in Italy, 
there was no necessity for such an extraordinary magistracy as the dictatorship. But whenever internal dangers seemed to require a stronger executive, the Senate invested the consuls with dictatorial power. 6. The censors were two in number, elected every five years, but they held their office for a year and a half. They were taken, as a general rule, from those who had been previously consuls, and their office was regarded as the highest dignity in the state. Their duties, which were very extensive and very important, may be divided into three classes, all of which, however, were closely connected. Their first and most important duty was to take the census. This was not simply a list of the population, according to the modern use of the word, but evaluation of the property of every Roman citizen. This valuation was necessary, not only for the assessment of the property tax, but also for determining the position of every citizen in the state, which was regulated, in accordance with the constitution of surveys tullies, by the amount of his property. Accordingly, the censors had to draw up lists of the classes and centuries. They also made out the lists of the senators and equites, striking out the names of all whom they deemed unworthy, and filling up all vacancies in the Senate. Be the censors possessed a general control over the conduct and morals of the citizens. In the exercise of this important power they were not guided by any rules of law, but simply by their own sense of duty. They punished acts of private as well as public immorality and visited with their censure not only offenses against the laws, but everything opposed to the old Roman character and habits, such as living in celibacy, extravagance, luxury, etc. They had the power of degrading every citizen to a lower rank, of expelling senators from the Senate, of depriving the equites of their horses, and of removing ordinary citizens from their tribes, and thus excluding them from all political rights. See. The censors also had the administration of the finances of the state, under the direction of the Senate. They let out the taxes to the highest bidders for the space of a lustrum, or five years. They likewise received from the Senate certain sums of money to keep the public buildings, roads, and aqueducts in repair, and to construct new public works in Rome and other parts of Italy. Hence we find that many of the great public roads, such as the Via Ippia and Via Flaminia, were made by censors. I.I. The Senate. The Senate was in reality the executive government of Rome, and the magistrates, of whom we have been speaking, were only its ministers. The Senate consisted of 300 members, who held the dignity for life unless expelled by the censors for reasons already mentioned, but they could not transmit the honor to their sons. All vacancies in the body were filled up by the censors every five years from those who had held the quaestorship or any higher magistracy. The censors were thus confined in their selection to those who had already received the confidence of the people, and no one could therefore enter the Senate unless he had some experience in political affairs. The power of the Senate was very great. It exercised a control over legislation, since no law could be proposed to the assemblies of the people unless it had first received the approval of the Senate. In many cases, senators consulted were passed, which had the force of laws without being submitted to the popular assemblies at all. This was especially the case in matters affecting religion, police, administration, the provinces, and all foreign relations. In foreign affairs the authority of the Senate was absolute, with the exception of declaring war and making peace, which needed the sanction of the centuries. The Senate assigned the provinces into which the consuls and praetors were to be sent, they determined the manner in which a war was to be conducted, and the number of troops to be levied. They prolonged the command of a general or superseded him at their pleasure, and on his return they granted or refused him a triumph, 
they alone carried on negotiations with foreign states, and all ambassadors to foreign powers were appointed by the Senate from their own body. In home affairs they had the superintendence in all matters of religion. They had also the entire administration of the finances. When the Republic was in danger the Senate had the power of suspending the laws by the appointment of a dictator, or by investing the consuls with dictatorial power. As already mentioned, III, the Popular Assemblies, 1. The Comitia Curiata, the Patrician Assembly, had become a mere form as early as the First Punic War. The gradual decline of its power has been already traced. It continued to meet for the transaction of certain matters pertaining to the patrician gents, but was represented simply by thirty lictors. 2. The constitution of the Comitia Centuriata, as established by Servius Tullius, had undergone a great change between the time of the Licinian Rogations and the Punic Wars, but both the exact time and nature of this change are unknown. It appears, however, that its object was to give more power and influence to the popular element in the state. For this purpose the 35 tribes were taken as the basis of the new constitution of the centuries. Each tribe was probably divided into five property classes, and each classes was subdivided into two centuries, one of seniors and the other of juniors. Each tribe would thus contain ten centuries, and, consequently, the 35 tribes would have 350 centuries, so that, with the 18 centuries of the knights, the total number of the centuries would be 368. The Comitia of the century still retained the election of the higher magistrates, the power of enacting laws, of declaring war and making peace, and also the highest judicial functions. Accusations for treason were brought before the centuries, and in all criminal matters every Roman citizen could appeal to them. But, notwithstanding these extensive powers, their influence in the state was gradually superseded by the assembly of the tribes. 3. The Comitia Tributa obtained its superior influence and power mainly through its tribunes. The assembly of the centuries, being summoned and presided over by the consuls, was, to a great extent, an instrument in the hands of the Senate, while that of the tribes, being guided by its own magistrates, and representing the popular element, was frequently opposed to the Senate, and took an active part in the internal administration of the state. The increasing power of the tribunes naturally led to a corresponding increase in the power of the tribes. The right of intercession possessed by the tribunes was extended to all matters. Thus we find the tribunes preventing the consuls from summoning the senate and from proposing laws to the commissia of the centuries. As the persons of the tribunes were sacred, the senate could exercise no control over them, while they, on the contrary, could even seize a consul or a censor, and throw him into prison. The only effective check which the Senate had upon the proceedings of the tribunes was, that one tribune could put his veto upon the acts of his colleagues. Consequently, by securing the support of one member of the body, the Senate were able to prevent the other tribunes from carrying out their plans. The plebiscita enacted by the tribes had the same force as the legs of the centuries. There were thus two sovereign assemblies at Rome, each independent of the other, that of the tribes, as already observed was the most important at the period which we have now reached. I.D. Finances. The ordinary expenditure of the Roman state was not large. All the magistrates discharged their duties without pay, and the allied troops, which formed so large a portion of the Roman army, were maintained by the allies themselves. The expenses of war were defrayed by a property tax called tributum, which was usually one in a thousand, or one-tenth percent but after the last war with Macedonia the treasury received such large sums from the provinces that the tributum was abolished, 
From this time the expenses of the state were almost entirely defrayed by the taxes levied in the provinces. The other revenues of the state, which bore the general name of Vectigalia, may be dismissed with a few words. They consisted of the rents arising from the public lands, of the customs duties, of the taxes upon mines, salt, etc. The army, the Roman army was originally called Legio, and this name, which is coeval with the foundation of Rome, continued down to the latest times. The legion was therefore not equivalent to what we call a regiment, inasmuch as it contained troops of all arms, infantry, cavalry, and, when military engines were extensively employed, artillery also. The number of soldiers who, at different periods, were contained in a legion, does not appear to have been absolutely fixed, but to have varied within moderate limits. Under Romulus the legion contained 3,000 foot soldiers. From the expulsion of the kings until the second year of the Second Punic War the regular number may be fixed at 4,000 or 4,200 infantry. From the latter period until the consulship of Marius the ordinary number was from 5,000 to 5,200. For some centuries after Marius the numbers varied from 5,000 to 6,200, generally approaching to the higher limit. Amid all the variations with regard to the infantry, 300 horsemen formed the regular complement of the legion. The organization of the legion differed at different periods. 1. First period. Serves Tullis. The legion of Serves is so closely connected with the Comitia Centuriata that it has already been discussed, and it is only necessary to state here that it was a phalanx equipped in the Greek fashion, the front ranks being furnished with a complete suit of armor, their weapons being long spears, and their chief defense the round argolic shield clypeus. 2. Second period. The Great Latin War. B.C. 340. The legion in B.C. 340 had almost entirely discarded the tactics of the phalanx. It was now drawn up in three, or perhaps we ought to say, in five lines. The soldiers of the first line, called Hastapi, consisted of youths in the first bloom of manhood, distributed into fifteen companies or maniples manipuli, a moderate space being left between each. The maniple contained sixty privates, two centurions centurions and a standard bearer of auxiliaries. The second line, the Principus, was composed of men in the full vigor of life, divided in like manner into fifteen maniples, all heavily armed. The two lines of the Hastapi and Principus taken together amounted to thirty maniples, and formed the Antepilini. The third line, the Triri, composed of tried veterans, was also in fifteen divisions, but each of these was triple, containing three maniples. In these triple maniples the veterans, or triarii proper, formed the front ranks, immediately behind them stood the roarii, inferior in age and prowess, while the accensi, or supernumeraries, less trustworthy than either, were posted in the extreme rear. 3. Third period, during the wars of the younger Scipio, under ordinary circumstances four legions were levied y, 